Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckleberry fins? And what the fuck in Heimers? Why not? Why not an in Heimers? Do you have any idea how many of those have been submitted to me? Do you have any idea how many of those names and things that I've gone through? By the way, hi, I'm Mark Marin. Welcome to the show. This is WTF. This is the 600th episode of WTF. Isn't that amazing is that amazing the first episode was september 1st 2009 recorded just blocks away from where i am i'll give you a little a little bit of taste uh, a little taste of the history uh of of how far i've come right now i'm in a hotel room in new york and i'm only i'm only about five big blocks uh and uh maybe 18 little blocks away from where from where wtf was born the studio it was born in is nearby. There was an argument to be made that I, I just maybe broadcast from that studio, but I don't think it's there anymore. I don't know what's in that building where the last phase, the last incarnation, the last uh, structural representation of Air America Radio once was. I don't know where what's in there now, but I'm sure that that studio, which was state-of-the-art and built specifically uh, as a studio for that network, uh, I'm sure now there's nothing. It, it's just uh, just memory, just a flash in the pan of the history of a building on 6th Avenue. But the point is, on the show today for my 600th episode, my guest is is Sam Cedar. Uh, Sam Cedar is now the, the current host and proprietor and man in charge of the Majority Report. That's a live show. It's weekdays at noon, noon Eastern. Uh, it's, uh, it's also available as a podcast. You can go to majority.fm to check that out. But Sam and I, he was there at the beginning. He was there at the beginning of WTF. He appeared on one of the first WTFs as the guy stealing cable, I think, from uh, from the Air America studio that we were both recently fired from. I will give you the backstory on that momentarily. What I'd like to do now is there's sort of a, a surprise guest. We have a surprise guest. I, I'll explain to you the, the, the deal, okay? I'm, I'm staying at a, at a hotel where a lot of people stay. I've seen a lot of people here at the hotel. It's just one of those hotels. It's, it's kind of fancy, but it's kind of homey. So I was at the hotel hanging out yesterday, and who do I see? My old pal Jack Black, who you know. Uh, Jack and Kyle have been on the show. Tenacious D has been on the show. I've known Jack for years. It was nice to see him. He's here to, for the premiere of his movie, The D Train, which uh, I know starts in theaters tomorrow because I was going to do a plug for it. We had a plug on the docket 
for the D train. And in my brain, I think, uh, all right, great. Well, Jack's here. Why not go accost him instead of just being social and go, hey, man, I got my shit. I got my gear. It's up in the room. Do you think maybe we could do a little thing about the movie that you're here to promote? Do you think maybe I could get in on that because we're old buddies? And he said, I don't know, Mark. And then, uh, well, I texted him. And it uh, turns out he's like literally next door, and uh, and now he's in my room. So have you been? You've stayed at this hotel before? Uh, no, but yeah, it is crazy down there. There's a, it's a scene. It is. I mean, I, I saw, can't believe who did you see? I saw a lot of people. Really? I saw the girl that was in uh, the woman. The woman. The girl who's on the Cosby Show. No, Lisa Bonet. Yes, I was on the elevator with yes. her today. I was too. You were? She was taking the elevator a lot she's today. On, I think she's on that floor. She's what, on, yeah. It's a coincidence that you're right next door to me. I know. I was in a movie with her, so we have like a previous relationship and a friendship and a, and a bond that you don't share. No, she didn't know me at all. At all. I, nothing. Nothing. I said, hi. And she goes, I said, how you doing? She goes, just getting started. You? And I said, I'm, I'm good. That's pretty familiar out of the gate, though. Yeah, I guess. I it's, mean. It's not your average. Uh, not much. Right. But this this hotel feels kind of cozy. Everybody feels yeah. like we're special here. Who'd I, you see? Did I saw you? the woman yeah. from uh, House of Cards who was killed by uh, the president guy. Oh, did you say, I'm, like, I'm sorry that that happened to you? Uh, no, because I know what acting is. <laughs> did you see Did you see Zac Efron? I didn't. Is he in the I saw him, the building? I saw him walk out yesterday. Uh, you know what, what, what I really wanted to happen yesterday? A super shuttle pulled out in front. I really wanted a major celebrity to get into the super shuttle. Oh, I, man. Th- that would have been the best moment. Super shuttle, you really want to live close to the airport. Then right. you got the best deal. Right. Then everyone's sort of like, oh, where are we stopping? This guy first. He's Marin's right here. House. Right here. But the weird thing is, if you're on a super shuttle, yeah. you get to meet cool people. Sure, nice and people. you know where they live. Exactly. That's kind of creepy. You're a dentist. I'm yeah. coming over. Got your address. I don't need an office visit. Look at my teeth at your house. I'm writing it down. <laughs> what um what have you been doing? Um promo. Just just uh just pimping my wares. Yeah. I got a new flick and I'm telling the world about it. But not everybody. Right. We're keeping it cool. Just trying to keep it, you know, very hush hush. I think the premiere is in a back room in a bar somewhere, isn't it? Exactly. Are you going to dress up for it? it. (laughs) Some movies you want just, you know, exclusive clientele only. Yeah. It's not for everybody. Yeah. What is a movie? It's It's a little dark comedy about insecurity and about uh, popularity and unpopularity. Uh It's called the D train. Yeah. What's the pitch? It's about pitch a high school, reun- high school reunion. Yeah. Okay, I see that. Least popular guy at uh, high school wants things to be different this time, wants to be accepted, wants to be popular. Yeah. He organizes the 20-year reunion. No one is RSVPing. It's his nightmare come true. Right. He hatches a plan. If he can get the most popular guy, Oliver Lawless, uh-huh. to come to the reunion, everyone will come. Played by James Marsden, Oliver Lawless, incredible, is in Hollywood now, struggling actor. But to me, he seems like he's the king. Right, he's made it because I saw him in a national television commercial, Banana Boat. Right, this guy is the <laughs> shit. Yeah, yeah. So I go to Hollywood to get him to come, and I'm, I'm already telling you too much of the plot. That's sure. not a good pitch. Yeah. Well, it's a good pitch, but I'm not pitching no, you the it, movie. No, in my mind, I'm selling already... you. A ticket. Right. Well, I like the pitch idea because in my mind, if that was the pitch, you've already done some writing. Let me tell you something. What, buddy? 
this thing writes itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've told there you are, enough. There are twists. Yes. There are turns. We push some boundaries for real. Really? Yeah. It's a fun movie. That's why I liked it. Is because, there action? Uh, Is there action? That, no, not really. Well, emotional roller coaster. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Emotional explosion. It's not good when you ask the question, is there action? And the answer is no. That's immediately not selling tickets. No, but I remember. Does already, that sell tickets? Yeah. Some people go, oh, good, finally, no action. That's a movie I but can enjoy. Jack, you are action. I you am. are action personified. Then you shouldn't even have to ask that I question. I apologize. But but I already, I'm already compelled because it, what, in my mind, what has to happen is you realize the guy's not what you think he is. Exactly. Love that. Exactly. And it turns into a maybe a sad and challenging story that's hilarious. It's not easy, you know. It's it's a it's a sometimes it's very awkward. Yeah. And those are the moments I love. That's what I'm drawn to. That's Did you have fun making the to. movie? Yeah. I mean, we made it very fast. Twenty one days. Really. And. Uh, and th- those are the kinds of movies I like too. Like I did a movie, Bernie. Yeah, we did that in like three weeks. People love that movie. It was great. It was a great uh, uh, Richard Linklater it. joint. I, I know. I yeah. talked to him about it, um, and man, I felt shitty because I didn't best. see it. Now I'm feeling shitty again. Look, don't feel shitty. Just see it. It's not your job to see things. We're not selling that movie today. Uh yeah, we are. Okay, everything's always available forever into eternity. You look well, man. I feel good. Thank you for noticing my my wellness. Yeah, how long have you been in town? Um, just a few days. Yeah, I whipped in just day before yesterday, and yeah. then I'll whip out tomorrow. Have people seen the film? What's been the response? Uh, but to been the great screeners? response. We get you know we went to Sundance Film Festival, and they loved it. Who cares if they loved it? We got in. <laughs> you understand how exclusive? Yeah, I know. How I competitive know. it is? To I get don't. Him? I'm not in that business. It's almost impossible. Yeah. Go make an independent film. See how many times you get into Sundance. Well, do you have time to do my independent film? I have. I've, been, I've got no pitch. I've even. I haven't even got an idea, but I would like to attach you to it. Wow. Yeah. Can I, I attach you to an un, untitled, unscripted, no idea movie right now? Will you commit to it in my hotel room? I yeah. Subject to availability. Absolutely. <laughs> I am so all the way in. Subject to availability. Good man. That's a vote of confidence. That's always. The... I'm going to take it to the. I'm going to go right to producers. Yeah. Subject to availability. Jack Black's in on an idea that I might have soon. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> Wait, how's everything? How's the family? The boys are great. The wife is great. How old are the boys? Uh, six and eight years old. Oh shit! So that's a blast. Yeah, Tommy and Sammy, and uh, yeah, they're they're uh, they're doing a lot of screen time, which is really good. What do you mean, like on FaceTime and stuff, or screen? It's time? a lot of like iPad, oh, and yeah. like just uh, <laughs> in television. So they don't talk to you at all. You just sort of like boys. No, I mean, yeah. study. New studies are coming in now that show that that's the good parenting. Oh, really? The ones that give them as much screen time as possible. So is that true? I'm doing really no. That's oh. not true. They're not. They don't have that much screen time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have to come come clean with you. They do have some. Sure. Lisa Benet was in the elevator, and she she judged me pretty harshly when she oh. found out that my boys had some screen time. Oh, you talked to her about it? She's that on, quickly. She, she's on a zero screen time policy. Apparently. I bet she doesn't look like a screen With time person. Ones. No, no, that's that's hands on. Mommy's full, here, full on organic. Yeah. yeah, holding love. Yeah, a lot. Maybe breastfeeding well into the kids' teens. Yeah, I don't know. Studies have shown that. <laughs> it tastes good. <laughs> it tastes good, but means something different as time goes on. So today's Thursday, yeah, May seventh, yeah, 
The film opens tomorrow, Friday, yeah. May 8th, uh, in theaters across the country. That's right. It, uh, 900 theaters, I believe. Does that matter how many theaters? I think you should you just up the number. Maybe, maybe. You should say it's 9,000 theaters. 9,000 theaters. The most theaters that have ever been shown. Uh, we got, yeah, the movie comes out tomorrow. Yeah. It is an uncomfortable little masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It's not for everyone. It's just for people who like really sophisticated, interesting, dark tales of intrigue. Right on. The D train. That's it. And thank you for being a special guest on my 600th episode. Buddy, is this it? Yeah. Does this count as an episode? This was just a little nugget. Uh, no, there's more. There's more. This is just a little part. Oh, this is You're just part the of a bigger episode. Oh, oh, great. The fun starts. Who else? Who am Sam I opening Cedar. for? Sam Cedar. Oh, Sam Cedar. You know Sam? Of course. He's, great guy. Well, now he's a political man. He's a political man, but a very funny guy. And a funny guy. And he's like, him and I go back and we thought it was inappropriate. Has he always been a political funny guy? Or did, did the politics come later as he, as he blossomed? I think he, you know, he got more political. But when I met him, he was a comedic actor. That's when I knew him. Yeah, back in the day when he was doing TV and stuff, and he was dating Sarah Silverman. Yeah, and yeah, he was around. And then something grabbed him. He said, "Fuck TV. Yeah, I don't need it anymore unless I need money. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight the good fight. I see him occasionally on MSNBC. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great guy. He's a great. He's, he's great. annoying, but great guy. Um, he's you don't have to say that, I, you know, but I'll say that. I can say that with confidence, having worked with him a lot. That You're saying that he's a good guy. He's a good guy, but difficult. Because you have to say it. No, I'm not, I don't have to say it. But you but believe I do it. Say it. You believe it. Yeah. All right, well, good luck with the thing. Okay, thanks, man. Thanks, buddy. Good luck to you. You know, that was a surprise guest. 600th episode, Jack Black. Everything, everything worked out today, somehow. But let's talk about Sam Cedar. Let's talk about me and Sam Cedar. Let's talk about WTF. Let's talk about the evolution of, of where it came and, and to where we are. Now, me and Sam go way back, and we're going to talk about that. When I met Sam, he was a comedic actor. Uh, he did some sketch comedy. He had, uh, you know, he had a thing that he was doing. He always very, very ambitious. He was making movies. He, there's a lot of stuff that Sam did, and he was hilarious. And, and I saw him as a kindred spirit. And we were both, um, both uh, aggravated, uh, self-involved, funny Jews. And I related to him immediately. And we have sort of a, a long, you know, start and stop history. He was in San Francisco and I, I helped him out there. And, and then, you know, we, he was there at the beginning of Air America uh, with Jeanine uh, Garofalo on the air. And I was in the morning on the air. So we worked together there. And, but really that what happened before WTF started, the year before WTF started, is sort of a, a painful story for me in a lot of ways. Because I don't know how many of you watched Break Room Live but it was a live streaming video show done, done out of the break room at the Air America headquarters over there on 6th Avenue. It was our big idea. But how did it happen? Many of you who have watched that, well, actually, it wasn't many of you. Maybe a, a few hundred of you may have seen uh, Break Room Live, but maybe you enjoyed the tension and true aggravation of the Marin and Cedar dynamic at that time. W- let me try to explain what was going on there. Here's how... WTF began, and this is sort of the a little bit of an extended version. I had been fired from Air America several times. I was their original morning guy. I was part of a crew. We did a great show. Uh, you know, Sam was always doing the show with Janine later at night. I was the the opposite of Sam. I was early in the morning, but we did a great show in the morning. About a year and a half in, a moron named Danny Goldberg uh, took charge, 
and uh, fired us because he thought that Air America should be more like uh, uh, NPR. We tried to tell him that there already was an NPR and we were doing some irreverent, funny shit. We worked hard. We made good, funny, quality, funny, top shelf, funny. And Stern had just left Terrestrial. We were poised. We were doing good shit. And that dummy Goldberg shut us down fired me but there was still a couple of people within the organization that were like we like Marin let's keep him as a let's keep him in the batter's box let's let's create a placeholder for me so I went back to LA defeated pissed off and they got me a show on KTLK so they stuck me a tenant night uh, in a time slot where they still had an outstanding contract with a with a sports affiliate so me and Jim Earl who was my co-host used to sit there waiting for games to end Clippers games and some other team I don't know so we do an hour hour and a half show depending on how much time was left after the fucking game ended it was Siberia folks it was nasty and then Air America came back around and said new guy in charge we want you to come back and do mornings I'm like you guys still owe me a lot of money on my contract they're like that ain't happening I'm like I ain't coming back so that was that no more Air America for me. I go on with my life. And shortly after that, my wife says, I'm done with you. And she leaves me. Heartbroken. Messed up. I was going through a bad divorce. No kids. Just spite. Money draining out of me. Bankruptcy on the horizon. Almost losing my house out of nowhere. One of the old dudes from Air America, Carl. He calls me up and says, look, there's another new guy with new money here at Air America. I think we should take some of that money. <laughs> but in return give him a a video streaming video show we'll do the daily show on the internet and you're gonna host it and i'm like dude i'm shattered i'm heartbroken i'm despondent i'm incapable of being funny uh but if they'll pay to get me out of my divorce i'll be there in a second so i negotiated a deal where the new money guy would give me money to pay off my ex-wife and stop the hemorrhaging and i would do this streaming video show so we put the deal in place. I got to Air America. New people, new money. I could not even think about being funny. I was emaciated and just a fucking mess. And I said, well, I need my producer, Brendan McDonald. He's got to be part of this and you got to pay him good. And I need Sam Cedar in here because I'm not going to talk about politics. I can barely talk about food right now. And if we want to make this work, someone's got to carry that fucking weight. So Cedar said, all right, give me some money. I got him some money. But the problem is, is that Sam is, is a pretty righteous dude. He's a smart dude. His heart's in the right place, and he's fighting a good fight. But I was not into fighting that fight, so I fought with Sam. So we would fight constantly, on the air, off the air. But the thing about Sam is incredibly funny, enjoyed having him around. So that went on for about a year. We are just alternating between being at each other's throats and having some tremendously great laughs. That's the Sam and Mark dynamic. So obviously, uh, the show doesn't succeed. I actually thought it would. Sam always was defiantly said uh, that it would never succeed and we should just be happy to take the money. Whatever. Hilarious guy. Truly one of the funniest people I know. To be honest with you, I do love Sam Cedar a lot. So we get fired, but they don't kick us out of the office. Sam is you know, busy creating whatever his next thing is going to be. He wants to stay in the game. He wants to put together his show. And I'm like, well, we got to do uh, something else. And Brendan and I decide to start WTF while we're sitting there in the office with Sam, who's working a bunch of angles of his own. Uh, but quite honestly, there was no way I could include Sam in WTF because he was driving me fucking crazy. And I was at the end of my rope. But he was there. He was right there in the office with us talking about stuff. I think he credits himself with giving me the idea to do a podcast. But you can hear Sam 
early on uh, in, in these in in I, I think on one of the early episodes, but it's been this long. It's taken me six hundred episodes to have Sam on the show legitimately. So that's <laughs> that says something about our relationship. So does that sort of give you an idea? Are you with me? Do you understand the Marin and Cedar dynamic? Now, Sam Cedar is putting me in his movies. I opened his now famous um, uh, Who's the Caboose film. I was, uh, I think I was uh, cast, I, I think my credit is Bitter Guy at Bar, maybe. And then he had me play a manager on the, uh, the, uh, the series of, the, of Who's the Caboose, which I played Sarah Silverman's manager. He also had me play a, a, a slightly nutty a Hasidic Hasidic uh, postal worker in um, in the Bad Situationist, another classic Sam Cedar film. See, like a lot of you don't know that Sam Cedar. It's confusing sometimes because he's known in the political world for his punditry and his Majority Report FM as a, as a, a political opinionator. <laughs> Is that I think that's a Republican word, but also a very funny guy, funny actor, creative guy, a filmmaker, a dear friend of mine. And uh, his time has come. I had him. I, I I put him in an episode of Marin on IFC, which is very funny. And and he's here. He's here on the 600th episode because he was there at the beginning. And this is a way of marking that. I don't think he knew he was going to be on the 600th episode when we recorded the uh, when we recorded the interview. So there'll be no reference of that. He was the butterfly that sent the ripples that changed the weather around the other side of the planet. Before I introduce Sam, I, I do have to say this, that, you know, whatever Sam and I, whatever our relationship is, I, I do want to thank you, the people that listen to this show and have supported this show and have been there for me in a way that I could never even uh, imagine. I'm humbled and grateful uh, to the people that listen to this show. And it would not be, I would not have done this 600 episodes if it was not for you people. And that's, that's the truth. If this had not caught on, I don't know if I would have had the fortitude. If I was not doing something that so many people enjoyed, I don't know whether or not uh, I would have had the perseverance. So thank you for listening to this show. And now I'm going to put you through something that you may find uh, either entertaining or or challenging. Uh, My conversation with Sam Cedar uh, at the Cat Ranch. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Have you ever been to D.C. and done the whole thing? You know, I've been to D.C. multiple times, and I, when I was a kid, you know, in college, I interned yeah. in Capitol Hill. You and, did? Yeah. So you went into the Capitol? Yeah. That's oh, pretty yeah. cool, right? Yeah, and I've been into the Senate chambers yeah. since then, um, and, you know. What'd I, you do in there? 
just, you know, basically uh, ran around with my pants around my ankles just to see if I could. You didn't get caught? No. It's great, right? No. Actually, you're allowed to do that. That's one of the few things that they let you do. Is that part of the filibuster? You that's, can do that during a filibuster? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Not it, a lot of those guys use it, though. <laughs> it's in the Constitution. No, it's in the Constitution. <laughs> if you're doing it with your pants around your ankles, you're okay. <laughs> Sorry, But guys. I took that little subway they have underneath uh-huh. uh, the Capitol. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been there a few times. It's pretty amazing. I'm always uh, overwhelmed with uh, awe and excitement when I'm there. Uh, you know, when I was there as an intern, I was like, I, d- I never want to come back to the city ever again. Because of what it, it's involved in or just because of the way it looks? You, I just you, found it like to be a crappy city. It is sort of a crappy city, but the actual mall itself with the museums. Oh, yeah. And when you're sort of like, wow, it feels powerful. And the monuments, you know, you stand there at the Lincoln Monument like, damn, this is... This is big. We, well, I mean, we, this was thirty. We did year, something. This was thirty years ago too. I yeah, mean, those it, are all it, still standing. It was not. Oh, my parent. Yeah, apparently the yeah. Washington Monument has been there for like yeah, know, long thousands time. of years. Thousands. <laughs> the Egyptians built it. That's it was one of the first elevated pyramids. They were working on that though for a long time. I don't know. Like as as ig- ignorant or as uh, as out of the loop or apathetic as I am, when I go there, I'm always very moved. You know, and I go and I go to. I stand out in front of the Capitol. I look at the White House, I do all that stuff, and I'm like, have that moment where I'm like, I'm proud to be an American. Yeah, I don't have emotional reactions to things, so it really cuts Come off on. my- What are you my, talking about? I, I just don't. I don't know why. To anything? I mean- Come on, you're getting along with your daughter now. Like, I, I can see it. You're no, like- my the, kids, yes. She's like, this is a real person now, and you're very excited about it. No, I've always been, you know- um, I've always been excited and, you know, ambivalent. I mean, kids are not, you know. <laughs> but no, I've, I've, I love my children. That's good. Yeah. No. So I can say that proudly. Let's, let's, let's talk about a unique person. how you, uh, you sort of change tracks. Because it's a long, interesting process that people know. Like, you're out there. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's, know, seriously. It's an interesting way of saying it. <laughs> well, well, you know, because you're still funny. And you know you still have a uh, you know moderately. kind of, huh moderately. No, I think you're very funny. Oh well, thank you. Man. Always, I always, I there was always a hope in my heart that you would come back to the funny side, and then it just never wins out. I know. <laughs> I try. <laughs> I try. Like there's, you get really close, and then something. I get just, really close, and then I'm like, just, oh wait a second. You know, I mean the, I. What I mean, I think part of it is like there's always something that is uh, nagging at me. I mean, when you're when you're being funny, uh, there is necessarily a certain part of you got to take certain liberties. Yeah. On some level, right? right? I mean, you have to. You a lot of times you got to get very specific, but there's also some sort of like corners that you have to to cut uh-huh. to make and. Right, I, I that that I think it's like a like a like an OCD problem. Like I, it it, it just nags at me. So you're saying it, it, a lot of times comedy trivializes the real issue. It's not a question of trivializing. It's just not accurate, <laughs> and and so it's it's you know yeah it, for it to be funny broad. It's broad. It's broad. Okay, and you know and then you know and then I'm like wait 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 a second though technically speaking you know at a time of recession uh, you don't want the deficit to be shrinking right and and then you know that type of I mean that's it's very hard to make those specific things funny except to maybe one or two like you and uh, you know right, uh, <laughs> right. that's exactly that's my business model <laughs> you, you and Malikas what's his first name Marcos Marcos yeah you and Marcos could chuckle about that there is, I mean, it is, I think like that is- You and David Sirota could have a- Right, exactly. Laugh I mean, it I, up, yuck it up. 
about yes. the possibilities of that working. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty narrow. Uh, <laughs> like, I do think that you know, you remember that Steve Martin joke? I think I can't remember what album it was, but I mean, this was you know from like the seventies or yeah. whatever it was, where he's got that joke. I think about like going to the plumbers. I think it's the plumbers convention, and yeah. like that's not a ratchet wrench. Right. <laughs> that's yeah. sort of I feel like what my career is. <laughs> But it's good that you know everybody. You what know, do you mean, who, know everybody? Well, I mean that like your audience. I know my and, entire audience. Yeah, yes, and, that's and, right. And the other people by that first name will understand. That's right. But it didn't start out that way. You grew up what in Worcester, which I, I find hard to fathom, because my experience with Worcester is that when I started when I was in Boston doing comedy and in college, you drive to Worcester to go to the Centrum or something, and just look like a. To me, in my brain, I didn't spend much. time I was time working there. at a parking lot, probably. Really, uh, at the Centrum? Yeah. You think maybe? You know the thing about Worcester is it took three referendums to get the centrum in because people were afraid of the outside element so so it gives you a sense of like how sheltered provincial is that what yes. you call it yes yeah. parochial I parochial would say. Yeah. yeah really so worcester was like he him out we don't want it the uh, the other element here yeah really yeah. and you remember that but was worcester when you were a kid was it like to me it was it, it died yeah but it, it was dead when i was born it was All yeah right. no it was very big why were your parents city. there well, that's just because I don't know. That's what they held on. Were. Oh, really? Parents were. Oh, sure. Huh? My parents didn't move to Worcester to like <laughs> to start a life. Yeah, no, people don't do that. What about now? Is it nicer now? Is it coming back around? No, I actually think it's. I mean, it's fascinating. Worcester has just been. I mean, again, like now, it, like the first thing that occurs to me when yeah. we talk about this is like there were industrialists. Right. I mean, and I've had arguments with people who have argued like have gone back into the to the records to, de- to debate as to whether or not there's the validity of this story. So I should just say that right up front. That there are people that but, argue this? That, that no, I haven't even Are said not what, on board right. with the, what you're about to say? Yes. Okay. But my understanding is yeah. that if you look at the Massachusetts Turnpike as it comes from Boston to Worcester, it should cut right through Worcester and then oh, head no, to Springfield. it goes around, right? But it goes around. Yeah, I remember doing that, yeah. And Worcester at the time that this was built had some of the biggest industrialists in the country like Wyman Gordon and uh, Norton, the biggest abrasive company in the world, yeah. the company that developed yeah. the M1 Garland uh, right. rifle uh, the spacesuit mm-hmm. and they wanted to maintain the uh the the sort of inexpensiveness of their labor force and by adding 20 minutes to the ride to boston you do that uh you ba- and and they also i would argue kept just about every idea out of there like you know like the well, sting is just opening in worcester right, right. now <laughs> but but how does it add 20 minutes so like they wanted their labor force well, closer you, by well no in other words like the commute to boston yeah as the crow flies, like should 45 be minutes. less. Yeah, 40 minutes. Yeah. But it really takes like an hour now. Yeah. Uh, because you got to go down south and then get the Mass Pike and then come back up. Right. And so, you know, by adding an extra 20 minutes onto that commute, 25 minutes, uh, it means that the labor force is not able to move as quickly. Uh, yeah. And and Worcester's not a suburb of Boston, in which case the labor force would have been more expensive. Right. They wanted to keep it cheap. By keeping it Worcester. By keeping it, yeah, somewhat isolated. So, but- Second biggest city in New England. Is this something you realize, what, when you're like five or six or? No, I think probably closer to 12. <laughs> I mean, I did, I was I was heavily involved in Worcester local politics. That's not- As a child? Yeah, I was. But I, mean, you're, was I was always sort of dual tracking it. I was doing the, you know, Doherty Variety- yeah. show and, uh-huh. and also student government and uh, there was a charter commission yeah. at the time. I don't right. want to get into that. Were you a student government guy? Yeah, of course. Oh, but so your dad, your parents, 
your dad was, is a lawyer. That's correct. And he was he had a law practice in Worcester. That's right. And your mom uh, was a a teacher teacher model school so, teacher. And, and, and you had this one sister, two sisters. Oh yeah, two sisters. Oh, yeah, yeah, you've hit on both of them. I'm pretty no, sure. Don't. Or just maybe maybe that's the problem. You've probably just hit on one. You grew up with John Benjamin too. Everyone right. knows John Benjamin. Yeah, we talk. Everybody on... knows John Benjamin. That's right. And you guys were best friends. Yes. And what's the story? His mom. Who did I talk to? Was she was a ballet yeah. uh, teacher, and she taught my sister. Right. Yeah. She probably taught all the kids. Yeah. And you guys were. Was there a large Jewish community? Or was it just you and the Benjamins? It was just us and the Benjamins. <laughs> we would get together for a minion and. Uh, no, I mean, uh, um, not a huge uh, Jewish community, but a, a decent sized one. But was, and your grandparents- It shrunk considerably, apparently. But back in the day, there was probably like a, a, a nice area. Yeah, I mean, the wet, there's the west side of Worcester. Right. And then there's the, uh, you know, the sort of the south and north and east. And like I, I just like, to me, it was always like, hey, how are you? Like that, it was just- Well, I mean, there's a lot of that accent in my family and, it, you know, a couple of beers, it comes out with me, but it's not- um, there, I don't think it's a bad it's a, thing. I'm just saying I don't get- It's I, a blue, it's, it's sort of like a, you know, like a-, a Blue collar New England. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like a not as bad lol. <laughs> Did your grandfather own like a business? He was a, an attorney. Oh, he was an attorney too. Oh yeah, no, that's the thing. I went to law school for a year, and when I dropped out, the name of the firm was Cedar and Cedar. Yeah, and there were my grandfather's name was Samuel Cedar, right? And he had four brothers who right. were attorneys. Yeah, all in Cedar and Cedar. And then in my father's generation, there was like four other guys. But by the time I had dropped out of law school, my dad was the last Cedar in the firm. Uh huh. And like I specifically remember. When I left law school to do comedy, uh, got walking into my dad's law firm and like the junior partners were just like, Whoa. follow your dream, follow your dream. <laughs> Get out. They had all just, <laughs> they had all just moved up a notch. <laughs> <laughs> and was he, was your dad disappointed? Was your grandfather uh, yeah. disappointed? Well, my grandfather passed away before I was born. Uh, where, oh, really? Yeah. Where'd you go to college undergrad? Uh, Connecticut College with John Benjamin. Did you guys do comedy in college? Um, we I can't imagine did we... we did a radio show. You and John. Yes, that was. Uh... And you guys were best friends, like when you were ten. No, no, we were arch enemies when you were ten. Uh, probably closer to junior high. Yeah. Did you get bar mitzvahed? Uh, well, I would beat up his friends at the the bar, bar mitzvah. mitzvah circuit. Right, you did the beating up on the bar mitzvah circuit. Yeah. I think he told me you were kind of a bully. Well, right? that's the thing is, the you know, I I did hear part of that yeah. exchange, and John's sort of like a pathological liar. Is he? I mean, he's a little bit reformed, but he's a lot of what he talks about, like yeah. this stuff, is, is sort of it's imaginary. But 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 it seems like you're you're saying that it's true that you you were beating no his people friend, up. Well, no, I wasn't beating people up. I was getting it. His friends were uh, you know were also bullies, and uh -huh. so it was just like a it was more like a. Like a rival Bully bar ring? mitzvah gang thing. <laughs> so you guys were enemies. We, we, were, we were enemies, but then I think through high school, like I didn't really deal with them at all. And then- um, Really? What were you doing? Were you smoking cigarettes with the cooler kids? Or No, uh, I was at a different high school. Oh. And, um, and uh, I found out that he was going to Connecticut College, like I think the day before oh, I year. went. Right. And then I, <laughs> I literally, remember. our-, our our doors, or our dorm rooms are almost the distance apart from where you and I are now. Just and by coincidence. By coincidence. And um, 
uh, he didn't mesh with his roommate. I didn't mesh with mine. Then we went out and got drunk. And the next thing I think I know, that I think John had like a 1.82 in that first <laughs> semester. But you guys GPA. regrouped. Were you like, oh, thank God you're here. Finally, you know. Well, I mean, I think we eased into it. Yeah. I think alcohol helped that. <laughs> and was, the drinking age was 18 at that time in Connecticut. Right. Was so. there, but was there a moment where you're like, oh, fuck, this guy is here? Yeah, I think I was. I think that was the night before. But, you know, I had gotten something from my roommate what? that I thought was... I, I, I he had sent me a letter. Your roommate before we got there that said something to the effect of like, we should get a refrigerator because I hear it's really good for Coca Colas. Yeah, and for I mean it was a very awkward letter. And at one point I'm like, oh my god, this guy's brilliant. Yeah, this is hilarious. Yeah, he's trying to scare the shit out of me. And there's nothing I'm gonna do. There's not gonna and and I got there I realized like no that's not the case. <laughs> he was just. That was, weird, he was just controlly yeah. guy. Yeah, he was a he was a weird, very controlly guy. And was uh, what happened to that guy? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what happened to my first roommate either. I don't know. It was uh, not a good thing. No, <laughs> it wasn't great. <laughs> all right, so you and you and John, you you hang out, you get drunk. He's failing out of school. You're doing all right. I'm doing all right. Yeah. And uh, you're doing a radio show. Yeah, I mean, I, we did a radio show briefly. Uh, Sam minus John. I, we would go on as a duo, and he wouldn't say anything, and that didn't go. We just did a couple of those on the on the. So you'd say something, the, and there'd be just dead air, more or less. Uh huh. And um, it's interesting as a that's as the only a device, time that, not a. But I think we used to like just goof around with stuff, and uh, but we didn't really do comedy. I went in as a theater major, yeah, and left very quickly, and got more into student government. I was heavily involved in student government. You stopped being a theater major yeah. to do student government. And yeah, I was a government, I ended up being government and religious studies, I think. So. What scared you about the theater so quickly? It wasn't so much that I got scared as I was, uh, you know, I was, I was in the, the, the program and it was a pretty good cause it was associated with Eugene O'Neill, um, uh, theater in, uh -huh. in new London. And, um, I had to, uh, there was campaign night to run for, you know, whatever it was right. I was running for. And um, I had a job on Midsummer's Night's Dream on the production to literally like pull the rope yeah. to bring the, whatever it was, the, the princess up, uh, you know, yeah, on the elevator. Yeah. Up. And I went to the director and I said, look, I got to come late tomorrow night because I got to give a speech. And they're like, well, if you're not committed to the theater, then you're fired. And I was like, are you fucking serious? All right. Guess what? I'm going to do you one better. I quit everything. <laughs> so I showed that guy. <laughs> yeah. I bet you when your name comes up, he probably goes, oh, damn it. Cedar. How did I let him slip through my fingers? <laughs> so that was, the, that, was, that was the moment. See, it seems like that was a cathartic moment. That yeah. was the decision. I'm, I'm turning my back on the arts. Yes, and then uh, and then of course I I you know I I have vacillated that decision has continued throughout my entire life. But I wait, think. but in high school you were a student government guy too. Student government. How high did you get in the? Uh, I was I think at one point uh, vice president. So just couldn't you couldn't really seal it couldn't couldn't seal the deal with the president couldn't. You know I never. I didn't. I don't. I don't know that I attempted, but I. I still actually am in contact with the president. Oh, uh, you are. Yes, and we're waiting to return. Uh, Lester McCorn. He's actually a pastor. Yeah. Is he really? Yeah. Uh, and um, at a at a Baptist church down. I think I. I don't know if he's in Atlanta. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. And um, we're waiting. Yeah. We're waiting for the right time to, to go back to, and to move back in, take control yeah. again of, uh, of the high school, high school student government. 
So all right, so so what'd you get? What'd you run for in uh, college there when you when you turned your back on Shakespeare to uh, uh, to go to, to student s- government president? Was that president of the class? Yeah, you were president of the class and president of uh, the student government. Both? Yeah. They just what? No Not one... simultaneously at different times. Oh, I thought no one ran. You're like, will you do the other thing? Uh, too? I was I was very involved in. There was like a student government at Connecticut College. It's pretty, you know. Yeah, uh, vigorous, and we had divestment was a big issue at right. that point. And I remember giving a big speech to the board of trustees, and it was, it was actually a little bit tricky because there was uh, Pfizer uh, right. was in uh, New London, and Pfizer mm-hmm. had a lot of work uh, in South Africa, and right. um, it would the, the board of trustees was meeting on Floralia, like with the spring fling that you know, where yeah. everybody, and I was uh, a little bit, you know tipsy went in gave a speech and we divested and then the the chairman of uh, pfizer resigned from the board of directors because of it because of you no i don't know if it was me but but the college divested yeah wow that's something yeah so, so that must have given you a taste of the power there was a couple of uh, of actually there was like a a search for the dean of student life i mean there was a lot you know I, I always contended that the 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 dynamics more or less stay the same yeah uh the stakes change mm-hmm. but the dynamics stay the same which is actually sort of disturbing when you think about it which dynamics the dynamics of politics yes uh it, it, because when you start to realize and you know i think over the years that that i've been doing it which is now i guess 10 years been talking about politics and you know sort of like getting involved in that world you start to realize like Hey, you know what? A lot of major policy decisions are made just because some guy's a jackass, like a, just a fucking like a douchebag, and he doesn't like Bill Stevens is a real asshole. So yeah. I'm going to fuck 20 million people yeah. out of a fair wage or something like that. I mean, like literally, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. And uh, that's a really, I think, hard thing to wrap your head around because you really have to, I think. That they've detached themselves from the, the physical reality of what it effect it has on people. Empathetically, they've detached themselves, and it just becomes this in-house. Yeah, I don't dick know that fight. they were ever attached to ever. be detached. I mean, I think you, there's a certain amount of like. Well, that's a sort of a right. Well, that's a sort of a sad thing that you know somebody who 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 gets involved in being a career politician without really the the incentive of of looking out for the disenfranchised or the underdog. You got to question their 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 intentions. Yeah, I guess, but I mean, I think there's a certain inevitability. Like these are the type of people who gravitate to these type of things. And on both sides, I don't know. I guess I'm thinking of like Joe Lieberman and right. During, you know, we could have like a, a Medicare buy-in at age 55. Yeah, you know, which would be great. Right. You know, particularly for someone like yourself, yourself, yeah, sure. myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he fucked that up. I know. Oh well. But well, so why didn't you? Why didn't you get into politics in terms of, of I, running? I, I was I was contemplating that, but you know I think I had uh, my experience in college. I just felt like I don't want to have to live that type of life. But what life was that that you saw I at that know, time? Just like where you have to always constantly be putting up a, a projection. Oh, oh, to be diplomatic. Yeah, and to to be uh, yeah, charming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know some some measure of that. And you and, got too much uh, fight in you. I think at one point I thought that I was going to go do that. And then I well, think- like Congress? Yeah. I mean, I think probably Senate. Uh-huh. Uh, I was, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> that's where you start. I, mean, I don't know. It's, yeah. I, I just remember saying to myself, like, when I was working in Washington, like, I'm not coming back here until, uh, unless I'm like a senator. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, you know, I think I at one point had 
the idea that maybe I would do that. And, and, uh, but I, I don't know, something, something snapped inside me. And I think, you know, I went to law school for a year and then I decided, I mean, I had traveled for a year and then went to law school and then traveled. Yeah. I went to Australia for about a year. I hitched around Australia and worked there before I went to law school. Right. Oh, when you, after you graduated college. Yeah. I had, I, I had gotten some fellowship to do some leadership thing that would have put me, I think, in like St. Louis with a bunch for a year. Of, yeah, doing like a bunch of different like local stuff, and I just I don't I don't know. I just I, I didn't want to do it because I thought maybe I want to go into comedy. What what struck that nerve? What's that? The comedy nerve. Well, I had been performing like I had always sort of had this dual track throughout my through college, through college, through high school. Through, you were performing comedy. Well, I was doing like the the, the variety show, which right. was a comedy show, sketches. And, yeah, and I was like doing magician. I was a magician when I was a little kid. Like yeah. that's the way I would make money, like shoveling snow and doing magic shows for parties and stuff. What big stuff like uh, escaping from tanks or just with no? A it hands was like <laughs> seven, six year olds. It was basically like babysitting, but uh, you know, yeah. I had a top hat, so cute. that was basically the it. cedar kid does magic. Yeah, he's got these three tricks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was, so you did the variety shows and then, okay. So do you think though, that part of the reason you didn't want to get into politics is that, cause like, even when you talk about policy, you understand the nuances of policy, but you also understand the, the, the fucking heartbreak and never ending struggle to, to chisel away and deliberate policy it takes years. And it's very un, I would think it's like, it's almost like ungratifying and, and it's, uh, it's you know you have to just quietly chip away. There's not a lot of ego in it. Sometimes I didn't like the 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 sort of the public persona part of it. I felt like I didn't want to have to maintain some fake persona. Well, they yeah, and they have to sometimes right. to the point where you're like, what's in there? Right. It's a very weird thing, man. No, I I, that, I mean I think that's why I I I sort of never went in that direction, and 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 so um, I once got like my buddy Jim who worked for Clinton, he got me into a photo op thing. Like Clinton was doing a thing where right. he was at, a, at a, a rich people, probably a fundraiser. And then everybody, like, they take pictures with him, right? And Jim was going to sneak me in to take a picture with the president. And I, it was almost like someone had turned him off. Like, like there was a switch. Right. Like I stood beside the president of the United States and it, there was nothing there. It was just, he was just, he had gotten, he had figured out this way to just exist in this moment and let people, yeah, right. and then move past them. But I never had that feeling like where it's like so detached. Well, it's I bizarre. mean, think of the, literally the hundreds of thousands of people that you've got to shake their hands. and. But that's sort of, what—that's all they yeah. do. So that's their biggest challenge is to figure out a, a frequency at which to engage with the public. Yeah. And then the rest is just a bunch of guys telling them different things and go like, okay, that's a good idea. Right. Oh, yeah. Let's do that. I mean, I, I think there's some substance, uh, you know, the, you know, depending on the politician, there's a there's a lot of substance there and, yeah. and some more than others, you know, put on that uh, persona and have to. But, you know, to me, it just felt like I, I, I don't want to I don't want to do that. I mean, I think, you know, for me, it was like, God, I, I what did I deny myself by not being able to be drunk in the student union? <laughs> when I was, you know, I mean, right. I, I, you know, to reduce it down to its 
sort of lowest. But uh, but then but comedy is like completely different. What, what was compelling you towards that? Just the uh, like you liked making people laugh. You liked being an yeah, entertainer. Yeah, I was a fat kid, and so you, you know, were. Yeah, we've talked about that. All right, not here, not today. How right. fat were you? I know I'm, I was fat. I was the full on husky thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean that's why I think like I still am very like virulently anti label because as a kid I realized like I'm not walking around with the fuck with a pair of pants that says fat kid on yeah. it. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, why do I got to do that? So I got in the habit of taking, you know, labels off of, and then like, Let's you know, I husky? sort of maintain that. The Husky labels? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I also, you know, I, I, I was not, you know, I'm not like a, I didn't necessarily fit in socially yeah. for the most part. Right. I mean, I don't know if that comes difficult. across. Yeah, di- a little difficult. I was much more difficult as a child, I think. And so, How is that possible? <laughs> I think you'd be be amazed. Was, what, what, was, wasn't there some big prank that you and Benjamin did? Oh, well, there was all sorts of stuff. Like, you know, John, like I say, was sort of, he got himself in trouble because he had done something with that. I mean, I don't want to talk about it, but it was with charlie's parents right that was it yeah yes. he told this whole oh, he story did tell that story? yeah 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 well <laughs> you don't want to talk about it. even now 40 years later right well i don't 30 know, years really later 30 years later <laughs> yeah. i mean there's there's always been a series of pranks i mean like you know when we were in boston i couldn't john take it. that's and I why i had go, a hard time with you i just can't take that john and i would go to parties and be like you're a defense contractor you're a dentist yeah and then so just strangers oh yeah no we would oh, give oh, each other oh, jobs yeah uh, and improv. then yeah, because, and I don't know, I, we were sort of dicks at that time. I think it was a little dickish. He always struck me as a dick. No, he I is see, a dick. I, 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 no I understand you, right. like, and I understood you kind of an, innately immediately, but he was like that wild card. I was like, what is... Yeah, he's, he's, he's got a real attitude. He's, 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 <laughs> and it's cost me. It's really cost me. <laughs> I mean, put, like... You throw John under the bus? Well, what? yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> like uh, you know, just like everything from, like... Uh, working at a restaurant in Cambridge when we were there doing like you know like uh, I don't know it was cross comedy. Oh, that's right. You worked at that comedy. Italian restaurant or what? Uh, no, Chinese restaurant. Well, I worked at a Chinese restaurant. I remember before that. that. That was crazy. Cafe China. Before that, I was working at Casablanca. Right. And I wonder if like, that's even Benjamin's there the type of guy who yeah. you know. Here's the thing: is like Benjamin will just mercilessly make fun of people. Yeah. And they'll just they'll love it. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, that's the one thing I've always admired about him is like he can sort of like express sort of frustration with people and they just sort of like, but I can't like let that sit. Right. Like, like if I'm like making a joke with someone, you know, and it's really like sort of like there is some anger behind it. Yeah. It's not enough for me to have just like said it in the joking context right like like you know oh you're a jerk yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then i gotta go like no no i'm serious <laughs> i really don't like you <laughs> like that's my problem is right. that i can't you know and benjamin could sit there and go like hey douchebag and yeah. the guy's like oh, i love this guy yeah yeah but, uh, but and, with but me it's like, like, no, I'm no, like really. hey douchebag yeah no i'm not joking yeah, i yeah. actually really do think you're a douchebag i just want to make that clear i just it's very important to me that we understand that I don't like you. And so uh, there was one time, like, uh, you know, I got fired uh, at Casablanca. I got him the job. Mm-hmm. You were both working there. Yeah, but I got him the job there. I got fired, and he didn't tell me. He actually, like, sent me back in. And the manager what? was like, what are you doing here? I'm like, what do you mean? It's my shift. John didn't tell you? 
Why would he... I was living with John? Yeah, we were roommates. Why was it his job to tell you you were fired? Well, the manager said, "Tell you your roommate." Why were you fired? Because you know, I was like the like I you know I would go up to the manager, and go, "Hey, I have a different idea about how we can do, you know how it is." I mean, it's like I always thought that this is not efficient what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, is that. I will concede yeah. that that's really annoying uh, if you're a manager. Right. But I will also say, in my defense, I was right. The guy was a lush. He wasn't doing his job. Right. And so, you know, like I don't like to do things. Well, he clearly wasn't doing his job. He couldn't even fire you. He told your roommate. Right. Exactly. To fire you. No. Sh- exactly. So, so John didn't tell you. No. And he went to work. And I'm not convinced he didn't stoke the fires too. Frankly. Oh, really? Yeah. Got you fired. Yeah. So, but this is also again, this is the really the difference between you and show business and you and politics. You know, in both arenas, that particular yeah. issue. I, I don't know that. I, I don't think in in actually in comedy. I don't think I ever got myself fired in that way. No. No, no, no. But I mean, but just the personality issue. I don't think that in show business that ever hurt me. I don't think so. I, I mean. Maybe it did, but well, I, well, I wasn't aware. Well, let's of it. go through the show business because I met you. What was it like? I know exactly the moment we met. It was in Harvard Square. Yes, and it was. I had done an open mic. Right. I was with a couple of friends who I had like Benjamin. invited. Not enough. Benjamin was there. Maybe. You guys were both out in the. I was walking. I was walking. Yes, you were walking with uh, soon to be your first ex-wife. Yeah. And uh, I think I said, I don't know if Benjamin was there. I don't oh. think he was. Huh. And um, I and I said. Um, Oh, that's Mark Marin, that guy who did it before or whatever. Yeah. And you turned around, you were like 15 yards ahead of us. I don't know how you heard or you sort of like sensed that there were people. And you turned around, you, is there a problem? And that moment I remember really well because it really, to me, expresses, because it, at the at the time I was like, wow, he's really cantankerous. <laughs> but what I came to realize was that that was you saying like, can you ask me for my autograph? <laughs> what? That was basically what you were saying. You were saying, is there a problem? Like, why would there? No, we're in Harvard Square. We're walking around. Like, a bunch of, like, you know, I'm wearing, yeah, I don't yeah. know, like, I'm wearing a butt. You know, what, what What possible problem is there? It was really you saying, like, hey, could you come over here and ask me for my autograph, please? That's what... That's what that was. Like, okay, and that dynamic is really, I think, what I've I've come to understand about you. <laughs> like when I'm doing that, I just need attention? Yeah, that was like, yeah. It, it was, was like, hey, saying, give me a hug. Just like, hey. Like, yeah. Shouldn't you guys be coming to ask for my autograph now? <laughs> that was the next sentence? No, that was the, that that was was the subtext. Right. That was the subtext. The subtext of fuck you is, come on, let's hang out. Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's not even just hang out. It's, it's like, uh, take care of me. It's not even take care of me. It's like... Celebrate me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so it's slightly different than your particular problem. Right. No, my problem's uh, slightly different than that. So wait, so... All right, so you were doing the sketches. I was doing sketches and uh, I was it, doing stand-up. And, I remember. And Benjamin... Working uh, at that fucking I, Chinese restaurant. I left uh, law school and Benjamin, you know, was in like a Holocaust master's program at uh, Northwest. And I was like... So I said, come back, let's do comedy. You told him to drop out too? Yeah. And um, I, I didn't have to convince him. I don't think- A I, I Holocaust think master's? Part? I think he was like in history and I think he was like, uh, oh my you know, God. Holocaust studies was, I don't know, I think he's like wrote something on Eichmann or something. And uh, we, uh, at one point, I guess, you know, like, uh, I, I, don't, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but um, we ended up in cross comedy. Right. And- um, 
doing which that went on to become Mr. Show. Like I was involved in the very first cross comedy, and then there right, was and then that's how I met in. you around that. I mean, that's how I met right. like everybody so I know out. now. And John Innes, Warren Dombrowski, Chuck Squar, Carrie Prusa, Prusa uh, Jonathan Groff, right, uh, Cross, and. Um, uh, Ed Driscoll was around. And, uh, yeah, there was Christina, sort of like, yeah, because people would do, sometimes they'd do stand-up on the show, yeah. and then sometimes you would write a sketch. But that's how like I met Louie right. and Janine and Laura Keitlinger. And, uh, right, it was that Catch a Rising Star scene. Right, right. And, um, and you know, it was that was a great time. I mean, I, uh, Benjamin wasn't really doing stand-up at that time. He was just doing the sketch, but I was doing stand-up, so I would do like a little bit, you know, like I would go with I some, remember. Some road stuff, but not that I much. went with you. Didn't you go with me once somewhere? Didn't yeah. We, what was that? That was bad, D- wasn't down it? Down like on the north sh- uh, south shore, I feel like. And you did like three or five minutes and you had to get off? Wasn't it horrible? There was just a well, chair on a stage? usually what happens. I mean, the stuff I did I at that time was really I remember because I'm like, come on, you got the time, right? And I would do stuff that was really sort of... Uh, you know, my whole thing was to annoy the audience at that time. Well, you and Cross were kind of similar like that. Yeah, there was parts of that sort of Andy Kaufman. I was right. a big Andy Kaufman fan. Right. And, and uh, I was always trying to deconstruct stuff. And It's so funny because in my mind, you don't have to try to do that. Well, I know. I mean, it came very naturally uh, to me. And so... Um, so what happened? So all right, so we're all doing Catch a Rising Star, and I know that those guys. This is like the late '80s, and those guys early moved, '90s, early '90s at this point. But like cross comedy, they all moved to LA. Must have been after after '92. I guess that's right. Right around the time that I came out to San Francisco, cross comedy was starting to sort of like disintegrate, right. and I was just like, I, I want to go check out another scene, and. I don't know what I was doing out there, frankly. I it was mean, I weird was because like DJing you... bar mitzvahs and in San Francisco, assistant DJing bar mitzvahs, actually. Yeah, um, I do remember one really uncomfortable. Should I tell this story? Sure. Do you really want me to? I don't remember what it is. Oh, you, can, you can cut it out if it doesn't. Uh, yeah. if it's not appropriate. But I do remember one time where you saying to me like, "Is it uh, cheating to have phone sex?" I'm like, I don't know. Have you? Told, this uh, is before you're like that well, no but it was also before like the internet and everything this right, is all right. you had oh right right yeah right is it cheating to have phone sex um well i don't know i mean sort of seems like it unless you're talking to him yeah. about it and uh you're like oh, okay i mean cause, uh see that guy <laughs> having phone sex with don't, don't say any names i won't say any names yeah. having phone sex with uh his girlfriend his girlfriend <laughs> and and I was like, well, that seems like something I didn't want to know. And um, and then, uh, you know, and I would obviously, you know, we would, I would have dinner at your place. And you're like, oh, uh, uh, Kim wants to come over for dinner tomorrow night. And so I show up at dinner. Yeah. And it's you. Yeah. Kim. Yeah. Me. Yeah. The guy. And the girl you're having phone sex with. Oh, no. And I'm sitting at the table going like, why the fuck do I know? Right. Like, I really was that. I found that very upsetting. Yeah, frankly. Um, yeah, I'm, I was. It's a little bit of drama. Yeah, but it was like I didn't. Everything turned out your, for that guy. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure everybody's happy now. Yeah. You didn't appreciate. I'm the only one I, who was scarred from the whole thing. Let's yeah. put it that way. And <laughs> you didn't appreciate I dragged you into. The, yeah, I just don't like. I don't feel comfortable knowing stuff like that. Really? No, I don't like to know. I don't like. I don't like gossip. I don't like to know that. Do you stuff. really not like gossip? I really don't. I mean, I, you know, if it has anything to do with like 
personal relationships. Mm-hmm. I don't like to know anything. Like Sorry, that. buddy. I didn't. I didn't mean to bring you in to I that. Said, and, and you know, and I feel bad it's about twenty five years. I still feel like. It's a, yeah, creeped it's, up. It was a skeevy feeling you know, to yeah. be put in the position to be somebody's like uh, confidant. Yeah, well, it's not a confidant. That's not they're, 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 you know confidant's different. Well, I feel bad about the whole thing. Maybe I should apologize. I wonder what happened to her. I wouldn't. I would. No, I would leave, it, leave just, it. I would leave it live. Just leave there's, it. Be? Yeah, there's definitely no value. There's no reason no. to it at all. No. All right. Yeah, it was a it was a different time for me. It was a different time. Sure. But um I don't know if it was really a different time. Like, well, yeah, yeah, like, I'm alone. Slightly. I'm yeah, alone like again. The- <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the, things go. have gone to you went the go. other way. You got right. wife, two children. Right. I got what have I got? Oh come on. Panic. Two cats. Two cats. But wait, so what happened in San Francisco that made you go? Well because uh, like you went and had a kind so, of a half okay. a career in show business My, at some point. No idea how I went, you were bar mitzvah I DJ. Went, I went to kind of uh, remember that because you were yeah. like because I, I remember you Saturdays coming, I wasn't around that was the one but time you, I was you were around. like I'm doing it on my own today like I remember there was like a time where you like yeah, the I guy was, gave me his stuff yeah and I got to go do it myself right like yeah. you know I had no idea I, mean, I was only out there for like six to eight months I don't know how I got I just job. I just don't know who that guy it's so funny that you can't I have no idea who that guy do you remember is. him can you picture him vaguely <laughs> like vaguely I don't that that time just seems so distant. But but I remember you were lost because I was like, Do you want to do comedy? Do you want me to help you out? Because I remember we went yeah, and we took no, a ride I to was a having, gig. I had a problem with the idea of like I gotta get a headshot, like no fucking way. I'm not gonna market myself. I wouldn't do anything like businessy. And so I was going through a very difficult time and I went back to Boston. My girlfriend was back in Cambridge. And I actually it's funny, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but um I didn't know what to do, and I went to go. My mother's boyfriend lived like two blocks away from my my girlfriend at the time in Cambridge. I, I went over to my mother's boyfriend's house, and I was mm. like, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should go back out to San Francisco, because if I'm just out there, I'm just going to be out there for like three or four months and come back in the spring, and or I should just stay here now and just you know decide like I'm going to try and do something productive and get a headshot and like actually engage in the business of this. And I don't know what to do. My mother's boyfriend just like, he is this guy who, um, was, you know, he was at NYU film school. And, uh, what was it? Uh, Scorsese said like, come up with me up to, uh, upstate. There's going to yeah. be a big festival. We're going to shoot it. And he's like, why would I do that? <laughs> What's that going to be? And he was like incredibly well read and is like a, a maven. Yeah, right? right. You know? Yeah. And he just like listens to me talking. He goes and he grabs a book and he gives it to me. Yeah. And it's uh, John Barth's End of the Road. Yeah. I don't know if you know that book. And I got it in my pocket and I'm walking back to my girlfriend's thing. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I, I'm like, I just like, this is, this ambivalence was like with me for years. Yeah. And I'm walking at, down Mass Ave in Cambridge and I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should go back. I don't know if I should stay. I should go try and do something. And I walked by the video arcade that was there, and I'm like, I'll call Benjamin. We'll go play video games. Right. And I think that was my only solution. Right. Because he lived around the corner, and I walked towards the phone booth, and I suddenly remembered Benjamin was out of town. And I froze in mid-stride and was stuck, frozen on Mass Ave. <laughs> Like, just sort of like this, with like one arm up, like almost reaching to the phone booth. And I couldn't move. And I wasn't like, I, I, I don't know if I was having some type of panic attack or what it was, but I was there for at least 25 to like 45 minutes. No. Yes. And the only thing I can remember thinking is like, 
this is really fucked up, but it won't be a problem as long as none of these people walking by me come back. going to lunch come back. <laughs> like if I can get out of this position before anybody returns from lunch, I'll be okay. Otherwise, it's going to start to seem awkward, yeah. you know, because it wasn't like a place where you would do street art. Right. And although it's conceivable, people thought that. And that one of those? So slowly come out of it. I walk to my girlfriend's apartment, which is like a block away. And I immediately start reading this book. And in the second chapter, it's about this guy having a, a, a frozen episode, like being frozen just like that. Yeah. And this concept of, I think they called it mythotherapy, where you're sitting in two chairs and it's all about being paralyzed by the potential amount of options yeah, yeah, that are available yeah, yeah. to you. I know that. I get that at Home Depot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, the, the idea is that any given choice that you make yeah. is necessarily not as um, as palatable as the aggregate of all the other choices. Uh -huh. And, you know, but it was after that and a lot of therapy that I just decided, I'll get a headshot and I'll start taking But that's like anxiety. Stuff. It was anxiety, but it was like an intense ambivalence. Right. Because um, I... I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go into politics because I didn't want to put a projection out there. Yeah. And, you know, I was starting to realize, like, you've got to market yourself in some fashion. You've got to do a headshot. You've got to actually do the business of. Right. And, you know, for me, I mean, I think, I think at one point that's why, why I think I left comedy on some level. is like I had lost the sort of sense of, like, there's too much of the business part of it. And, you know, I had done... By the time I had left, I had done like a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, like, wait, okay, so you had the frozen moment, you read the Barth book, and then you got the headshot, and then how do you get into television? Then I just like stumbled into shit. I stumbled into shit. Like, you know, I moved down to New York yeah. in October of 94. Yeah. I had uh, been doing voiceovers in Boston. An agent in Boston, you know, like a booking agent. Right. Remember Moratai? Yeah, kind of. She had been a, a voiceover agent in New York, or a you know casting agent yeah. in New York. She set me up with a couple of uh, meetings with like ICM and William Morris and yeah. Paradigm. Yeah, I I made them all in the first two days that I was there in New York. In New York, ICM just coincidentally was setting up their scale department. They sent me out on an audition, a voiceover audition. The first audition I had in New York, I booked it. By the time I got to the meeting at ICM, they had heard that I had booked it. Right. Which was like, well, yeah. so the guy was like, and I remember him, he was standing in front of his desk I and mean, it was the full, full like LA, it was in yeah. New York, but he was standing in front of his deck talking into an earpiece. And at yeah. that time, you know, people didn't have cell phones, right. earpieces. It was and a big deal. It was a big deal. And he's talking into his, looking out to the view yeah. and he waves me in and he's doing the whole show. Yeah. And at that point I was just like, you know, like when you were in Boston doing this stuff, it's like, it's it, it very like. I just got to do a bunch of different jobs. I mean, yeah. this is what, and so he's like, Sam, we want to, uh, ICM is blah, 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 blah. And I didn't know ICM. I didn't right. know what the, just some, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I was like, well, um, you know, he's like, uh, you already booked the uh, thing and I want to keep doing this. I said, well, I'd love to, but I've got to meet with William Morris in Paradigm tomorrow. Yeah. And then when I went to William Morris, I said, I met with ICM yesterday and they already sent me on an audition, which I booked. And yeah. so, and so then, for the next couple of months, I had three agencies, big agencies, sending me to the casting agents. And so the casting agents were like, who the fuck is Sam Cedar? <laughs> He's got three agencies sending him in. And so when when they pay, pay attention to you, all of a sudden, like, you sound better to them. Yeah. You're in the top 10 and you start booking. And so the whole thing steamrolled. Yeah. You know, and so it was like creating some type of buzz. And at that point, 
um, my girlfriend at the time moved out to LA yeah. to do uh, pilot season. And so I went out there to just like, my Which girlfriend was that? It was Sarah. Yeah. And uh, Sarah Silverman. Sarah Silverman. Yeah. And I went out there and we lived together in that apartment that's in uh, who's the, the Caboose. The Montessori School. The Montessori School. <laughs> Mary Lynn Reiskel was living Tracy in the living Katsky. room. Tracy Katsky. And we had been up in Boston doing the Comedy Lab, which yeah. was me and Waterman and Benjamin. Right. And we were oh, doing, right. And we were doing all this sort of what ultimately became, at that time, alternative comedy. And some people from Comedy Central were opening up uh, a room, Rebar, in New York. Yeah. And I came down, and everything that we had been doing up in Boston was perfect for that room. Right. It was perfect for it. Yeah. And you were shooting stuff. I was shooting a lot of video, and, and I this shot this before it, you went to New York? Before I went to New York, yeah. I shot a- uh, I remember that. Like a 30-minute yeah, yeah. comedy lab that was a fake- sort of industrial like i was that's right it was a yeah. pitch reel for the comedy lab that kept falling apart so because, you were self-starting before you got this uh, yeah, agent yeah, thing yeah. and you had that because you guys yeah. sort of branched off see like this is important because like there was this like you know you were kind of like um a leader in in this idea where like once cross comedy went away and you knew you didn't want to be a stand-up really yeah. but you knew you wanted to keep working so you're sort of doing this you know uh, this satire of a lot of different stuff you were shooting your own shit i remember that because a lot of video involved so I went out to LA and I, I with Sarah for pilot season. for pilot season. I was just out there, you know. I figured I'll do voiceovers. Right. My manager was like, "You shouldn't go out there. You're doing well in New York." And I'm right. like, "Dude, whatever." Yeah. You know, it's like well, you're also dating somebody's. Yeah, I was like, having a good "It's time. not like I'm going to, you know, Nebraska. Yeah, I'm going to LA. Right. There's some industry there. Right. And um, and so uh, I I got on All American Girl, which was a revamped pilot with Margaret Chosha. Right. And they were revamping the pilot on air. Right. So all of a sudden, her entire family died, and she was living with like uh, three hipsters. Right. And in that one week, I had made more money than I had the year before. Right. Like the entire year. And um, I went back to New I think like, I think Sarah and I were starting to like break up around that time or whenever. And- um, or the fir- that was the first time we broke up. So I went back to New York for a s- short period of time. But then we got back together. So I, I tried to audition for another show. And that's when I did uh, that Fox show yeah. that um, that Larry Wilmore was the producer of. And oh, the show? John Ridley. What's it called, the show? Yeah, and Bowman and Matt Wickline. Where you were the white writer for a black... Variety show. Yeah. And uh, Paul was- Giamatti was in the pilot. And- but didn't you do like 10 of those? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, that was that, like it got a lot of big press, a lot of big... They thought that show... I mean, this is where I really started to understand, like... You know, I mean, I I, I had totally stepped in shit. Like, I yeah. mean, like, I auditioned for five things and booked two of them. I mean, yeah. it was completely... It was total luck. And I think part of it was just like... The swimmer hole. Yeah, well, the the key was, for me at that time, was Wednesday night or Thursday night was the biggest... It was must-see TV. It was the biggest night of television. Yeah. It was most successful. Yeah. And it was... Uh, Seinfeld, Silverman, Schwimmer, and you know maybe some other Jew. The other, the single guy. Yeah. Sil- well, Silverman was, yeah. I think, the, and and so I was, you know, that guy. Yeah. It yeah. was totally like the, it was just total flavor of the day. Yeah. And um, and I, I'll tell you, like, I, I I really thought, I mean. It, it, it was a real lesson. They thought this show was going to be so big. Like I would walk. I remember just like feeling like I would walk down like in Warner Brothers in the studio and just like, oh my god! Like executives were like, like 
like literally like in golf carts coming towards me like hey sam how's it going like i thought like oh my god there's there's like three or four executives. I'm convinced they're married, but I'm convinced I'm going to sleep with all of them. Like I've never had this type of like interest in me yeah, yeah, yeah. at all yeah. about anything, you know, like my family from friends, nothing. Yeah. And it was a weird time. It was like the first year after like the friends had just become a hit. Yeah. And we'd be in line behind like Jennifer Aniston and Schwimmer. Yeah. And, and the show was all was a, was the you know Bowman was the direct was the creator of Martin and so it was trying to meld these two things and that was what I think was supposed to be like the next all in the family type of thing right and for an episode or two it it probably was there and they they lost their nerve but it was it was fascinating first of all I learned so much from that both in terms of Hollywood but also in terms of like how uh, segregated like the black and white experience in Hollywood was right um, and. What do you mean? Because well, like, well, because it was exploring that. So you're saying for two episodes, it had some balls. Because Ridley's a brilliant guy, yeah, and 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 Wilmore's a brilliant guy, yeah. And obviously, the conceit was based on reality, yeah. I mean, it, it, what was interesting? I mean, there was a couple of things that, that were interesting. I mean, both within the context of TV, but also outside of TV. Um, and, and one, I had one experience that I tell retell the story like I don't know a, a lot on my on my show, um, which was. Um, Going back to uh, Chris Spencer's house one time, Chris Spencer was one know, of the guys yeah. on the, and, and he went on, I think, to host like a vibe show and some other stuff. And he does, he does a podcast with Madrigal. And okay, he, yeah, he's good. So yeah. Spencer, uh, we went back to his house. Right. Spencer was always upset about the way I dress. Like he actually, like at one point, like bought me clothes. He's like, "You're embarrassing all of us by the way you dress." But we went back to uh, his house and we pull into his garage. Uh, this is during lunch, and he lived in Hollywood at the time. Yeah. And a buddy of his pulls in right after us, yeah. driving a um, a Range Rover. And at that time, you know, that was the big right. car that everybody drove if they were successful. Right. And the guy comes in. He goes, "Oh, thank God you were here, because I was being followed by another cop." And he comes out. He's like, "I've been pulled over four times this month in my car." Right. And I called. He said I called the LAPD last week, and I was like. I, you know, I keep getting pulled over. Is there any way I can get like a sticker? He's a black guy and, and right. he's getting pulled over because he's black driving right. this, this Range Rover. Yeah. Is there a sticker I can get or something that just says like, I'm supposed to be in this car. And the guy says, and the, co- and, the and, and, and the cop on the other line says, you know, are you black? And he says, yeah. And he says, really nothing I can do. And I just really like, Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, if I was getting pulled over once a week, I mean, can you imagine if like, someone like our personality gets yeah. pulled over once a week? That would be it. There's no, there's no, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to write. I'm not going to write jokes. I'm not going to stand up. I'm not going to do a pie. I'm going to focus on this. One injustice 24 seven with everyone I meet, every way I talk to. And it's just like, you realize like, that's an experience that you've got to go. That's a huge set of luggage. You're going to carry through your life to deal with. It's like, but I mean, so that was sort of an experience outside of that. But the other experience was like, the night before the table read, I read the script, and there's this character, Big Fruity, yeah, who's part of the posse of right. the, the 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 lead of the show. The show I played a head writer of a sort of a uh, black In living talk color. show, yeah, yeah. And they have a posse, yeah. and it's like they got to drop their guns off before right. they come in, and it's Big Fruity is the guy. And yeah. I'm just thinking to myself, like, God, man, this is this seems a little bit like. 
caricature Right. Like, I don't know how comfortable I feel with this. Yeah. And so we go in for the reading, the table mm. read. And at the beginning of the table read, I think Bowman says, um, you'll notice, everybody, that uh, we had to change the name of some of the characters. Big Fruity is no longer Big Fruity. And all the black guys around the table are nodding their heads. Yep. And I'm like, oh, wow, I guess they figured this out. And he goes, and, and, and I'm like, and at one point it became clear why. Because the real Big Fruity yeah. <laughs> got wind of it and was basically being a little menacing about yeah. it. Because apparently there was a real Big Fruity. And everybody was like, you don't want to fuck with Big Fruity because right. he might shoot us or something. Right. Yeah. And I realized, like, my experience is so divorced that I'm imposing my sort of, like, white, I yeah. guess, you know, sort of, um, I don't know, liberal sort of projection of what is appropriate. In fact- Guilty is, conscience. Yeah. yeah. And, and but there was all sorts of things. Like, we would do actually, like, a prayer circle before uh -huh. the show, yeah. which was awkward because you don't do that on white shows. Mm -hmm. And I don't- you know, pray to, to Christ. Like he I, did it though, right? Well, I would hold hands just, right. you know, I was like looking around like, yeah. you know, and like, you know, please Jesus, let us be right. funny today. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, ah, you know, <laughs> I, I just feel like yeah. in the event that Jesus is really up there, like yeah. I'd put a couple of things above that, yeah. you know, in terms of import. Yeah. Uh, but, um, so, but so, it was fascinating. And then, you know, that ended. And, what happened with that show? Uh, it went eight episodes. Did people like it? Uh, it? You know, it got very well reviewed and then it just didn't go anywhere because it was, I think there was just so much hype around it and, and they got afraid. They got really afraid, I think. Uh, to I don't, keep pushing? Yeah. I, I mean, I think they just, I don't really know. I mean, you don't really, you know, as an actor in those situations, <clears throat> you just sort of get a, a sense of what's going on. But that, you know, that was basically it. After that, I did about eight other pilots. Um, and I had, you know, I had very big deals and I was like, you know, cause I was reluctant and that's like, if you're so somewhat... Did you give a fuck? I mean, cause that sometimes has it like, where, where you just sort of like, all right. Oh no, no. I was like actively like, I oh. don't want to go out to LA. Like right. I, there was a situation like Guy Island right. was, I mean, I, you know, I started doing pilots that I thought wouldn't go. And I made a lot of money that way. But you really did. It was really because they wouldn't go. They, you get offered these things and you're like, this is it's easy money. Easy and it's, money. And there's no and way it's not going to go. And, you know, I was caught up at that time of like, you know, the school of that we came from a little bit was like, it's immoral to do something that's not funny. Yeah. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. And, and I you don't want to be garbage. I was very ambivalent about that too. Yeah. And I think after after the show, I put that money into... I, I spent a lot of that money on making Who's the Caboose. You came back to New York and it was all based on... Uh, it was based on basically what had just happened to me right. over the past year. It's very funny too. But you're also like, you know, at that time, I don't know when that started, but you were getting involved in the work of that, uh, what's his name? Uh, well, not Cassavetes, but Carney's. It was, it was Cassavetes. Well, Cassavetes. And Carney's is a scholar, Cassavetes yes. scholar. Yeah. And it, you really were sort of after you did the comedy lab, you, your interest in independent film became... You know, yes, and deeper. I think, and I think, like you know, Cassavetes became sort of a model for me in that he would like make his money in Hollywood. Like he did a TV show. I don't know if you ever saw that. Like there was, he did a TV show that was like a jazz PI, mm -hmm. and I mean, it was clearly something that 
you know, he may have enjoyed it, and not, but he was making his money and then spending his money on his movies. And I'm like, oh, this is a model for me. Um, and, and how many movies did you make? You made Who's the Caboose, which is great. I, I made Who's the Caboose. And then the next thing I did was Beat Cops. But that, based upon Who's the Caboose, um, I made, you know, like- a, You shot a pilot for, for Conan's company? Was that well, Beat that, Cops? We did Beat Cops twice. Right. And the first time it was for Studios USA. And then Conan's company uh, basically bought it. Right. And we did it again for Fox. Which movie did I play the, the Hasidic- Oh, that was a bad situationist. Oh, the bad situationist. Yeah. yeah. So that was the second feature. That was the second feature, and that one didn't work out so well. It didn't. No. <laughs> Are you being facetious? Well, no. I just I remember that scene was funny. Oh yeah, that scene was really funny. Have yeah. you not seen the movie? I have seen it. Oh well, it was based on uh, I was pissed about the election. Right. And I had had a character that I had been doing. It was Lieberman's son, right? Yeah. Leading up to the election. Yeah. Joe Lieberman's son. Yeah. Who was a tennis pro in West right. Palm Beach? Uh, but that's that you made that up. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think I found out later he had a son who did crew or something. Right, but it right. wasn't. Um, and I didn't like Joe Lieberman at all at the time. I know. You're obsessed with him. I was obsessed with him. I was pissed about the Supreme Court uh, decision. Uh, Janine and I that night were stayed up all night to watch that. I think Eric Sloven was there, and I started taking photos of my television obsessively for the next like month and a half of Joe Lieberman. No, of the recount. Oh, yeah, right. And I was pissed about the Supreme Court. And I think that's when I think I, you know, things sort of like turned for me. And I wrote that film. We shot it. It ended with a, uh, with Joe Lieberman's fake son on the roof of his building after being inculcated by some. Oh, that's right. Some religious zealots to commit a terrorist attack. Right. Which is what your scene was. Right. Um, And uh, he was on his roof with a uh, bazooka aiming at a building in New York City. And uh, I was eight weeks into editing when the planes hit, hit the, the towers, right. and suddenly the idea of religious zealots promoting terrorist attacks in New York City against buildings, against buildings, Oof. and blowing up the post office, and right. taking over a theater with shivs, which had happened in Russia like days after that, uh, didn't. It turned out to be not that funny. So it took me about <laughs> six to eight years to finish that yeah. movie. But, um, yeah. and it, I don't know. That movie is sort of a mess. And it's, I've got a lot of DVDs sitting in my basement right now. <laughs> a lot of DVDs of that movie sitting in my basement. Uh, uh, but, but like, but, but so like, all right. So after, we don't need to tell the story of Guy Island, but you did all these different, you know, pilots, you made a lot of money and then you made the first movie, but then like we both get sort of corralled into Air America and then. Well, I was doing, I, I directed Busey. Oh, well, that's right. The abuse on Comedy Central. Yeah, I directed How that. How many episodes of that did you like do? 13. And that was um, difficult. <laughs> I mean, that was difficult. Yeah. He was a difficult guy to work with. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, they were what both- What was the name of the show? I'm with Busey. Yeah, so you were still, you were pretty entrenched in doing something funny that was original and unique and Oh, and then I did pilot season after that. The, the TV show. Yeah. Which I played a manager. Yes, and yeah. that was the sequel to Who's the Caboose. Trio had bought it, and which was awesome about that was it was a sequel to a movie that no one, literally so, no one had ever seen. And it was funny because, you know, they I remember they put all those episodes up. It was good, and you shot it like well, you were really hung up on, you were doing like that guerrilla shooting technique. You know, before, you, like, you can do that with any camera now, but not then. The Who's the Caboose was the first fictional, non-multimedia 
digital video to film. And everybody was like, why are you doing it on video? That's yeah. stupid. And then three, two years later, that's the only thing that, you know, that Anyone exploded. Yeah. But we had the first camera from Sony. Right. And then uh, pilot season was shot like, was like The Office before right. The Office. Right, uh, I remember. Came. I mean, because for me, it was like Albert Brooks, real life was mm -hmm. the, and um, uh, Sherman's March by Ross McElwee. Mm -hmm. Do you know that movie? Yeah, sure. It's great. I mean, the opening of Who's the Caboose is almost identical to Sherman's right. March. He goes down to New York. They're going to do a documentary on one thing, and then all of a sudden it goes a different right, direction. Right, right. And, um, and so that was the shooting style, and part of it was because I knew all these comedians who uh, were very funny, and I was shooting with video at the time, and you know this was around the time of Dogma 95. Do you yeah, remember that with sure. Vinterberg and yeah. those guys? And I was just thinking like, you know, I'm not creating a scene you know, and then some would, would argue this is not cinema, but um, I'm capturing a reality. And so the scene would happen and the cameras would work around the scene rather than the scene. So there was no marks. Right. You know, I mean, we would do it, the rehearsal and the, and, the, and the camera was really important for this. And, and I had a really good um, uh, uh, DP who also shoot, who, 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 I liked because he understood the rhythms of what was going on in front of him. Right. And um, and I wanted it to be, you know, I was calling it faux verite at the time. Yeah. To nobody because nobody gave a shit about what I was yeah. talking about. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was really just about creating a reality and then having the cameras captured. Sure. That. Um, and, you know, using jump cuts and stuff like that. And I did that with Beat Cops a little bit, too, because it was sort of like, you know, that's when, like, homicide was happening. I'm like, we can do sort of a, a comedy homicide thing. And you were also doing you know, acting in independent films, right? A few, a couple? Yeah, I was doing a little bit of acting. Was that last stop? What was it? <laughs> Next Stop Wonderland. Next Stop Wonderland. And you did uh, some uh, animated stuff. You you're on Bob's Burgers still, right? Yeah. And you did home movies. A little with, bit of home uh, movies. With what's his name? Yeah, uh, Lauren. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. Yes. Lauren's great. That's a lot of fun. But, but it's so interesting because, you, you know, you did a lot of shit. Well, you know, Janine called me and said, you know, I, in, in, in 2003, Sharpling, this is before Air America, let me do two hours on, on the best show at FMU, do the Majority Report, because I was really pissed about the fucking war. Mm -hmm. And uh, Janine was going on TV, and she was the only person, you know, she was the only person who was allowed to go on TV to talk about this shit. I was like, this is, you know, I was mad. I was really mad. She called me and said, like, they're starting a liberal network. I mean, I remember calling you after the first meeting I had with the people. And and at the time, I thought, like, I'm already spending a couple hours a day reading blogs. Yeah. And uh, this, I'll do this to the election. And when I was doing it, you know, and I was writing pilots, too, during this time. Right. You know, for, for, for network. And, you know, so I was making some money off of that, too. And I just finished the uh, pilot season. And I remember we started, I guess, in 2004. And pilot season, I think, you know, came on in, in September of 2004 on Trio. And then, of course, th like as soon as we made the deal with them, yeah, they basically announced, like, we're not going to exist in nine months. <laughs> I mean, that was sort of there was at one point somebody in the Globe wrote a piece about me. Uh, right around when my book was going to come out and entitled it uh, Failure is an Option. And, and to a certain extent, like, that theme has been there. Uh, you know, where it's like, I am incredibly lucky. 
Yeah. I am. This, this is my happening. luck is not quite. You know, it's like. I mean, there, there's, you know, because I am incredibly lucky. Yeah. And then there are other times where I don't have luck. And there's other times, like, I, you know, I walked away from a lot of shit that I probably, in retrospect, some of those decisions may not have been the best. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but I, I mean, it's just sort of interesting. I guess timing is one thing, but like, so, so really the, the impulse to, to get thoroughly involved with politics was just pure outrage at, at, at the I administration was, and the, the war. Not just the administration and the war. I was mad about the 2000 election. I mean, I was mad that the media was not talking about what a fuck, because, you know, I had been raised by a pack of lawyers. Yeah. And like the Supreme Court, like the legal institutions, you know, as far as I was concerned when I was a kid, like there's, there's only two ways to make money. Yeah. It's either you're a lawyer or you do something that's not right. <laughs> and because the law was like a, like a priesthood, like right. it's part of the fabric of society. Right. And what happened with that Supreme Court was, was just like, I think like the entire legal establishment was in a state of shock for the year. And, um, with the 2000 election. Yeah. And in fact, there was Newsweek, the first, the, the second week of September of 2001, the cover was going to be about this huge fracture on the Supreme Court. And of course, they never ran that, that cover story right. because 9-11 happened. But, uh, and I was still like, it was, I just couldn't believe what was going on in the fucking country. And I used to call into talk radio out here when I was doing like pilot season or Busey show and just, you know, fuck with those guys. The uh, righties. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're idiots. Yeah. I mean. You know, nobody would ever question him. And I would just come on. And I had been reading quite a bit at yeah. that time online. And I thought that maybe I would leave it. And I would start, you know, I still had both feet. And right. it was like a couple, like I think one or two movies that I said, no, I can't do right. because I can't walk away from this in the middle of the election. Right. And, um, and then, you know, I was still writing shows and whatnot at, uh, you know, while I was at Air America. And the last one I wrote was for AMC like only two years ago. It I was about that. Air America. Right. That's right. I think what happened was like, once I got used to the idea of, I used to spend months on 30 minutes of programming, like, you know, shooting it, writing it, right. editing it. Right. And now I'm spending hours prepping for three hours of programming. And it's immediate. And it's immediate. And it was a hard thing to adjust to, but it's relentless and it's exhausting in some ways. But... I feel like, you know, it gets my mind engaged more. Yeah. Um, I mean, I you know, it's not the same thing as it was, you know, 10 years ago. Um, there's different things that interest me about it, but I can't. But you do a podcast every day, three hours a day. No, it's about, um, it's about, it's, you know, the, the free one is about 45 minutes. And then I do a little more for another, yeah. another, another hour for. For the premium? Yeah. And do you find that, like, do you feel satisfied? I mean, you know, it's hard to go from like, you know, when we're doing radio, you've got like literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And you and Janine were great. You had, and there was a freedom to it and there was a excitement to being part of Air America, even though it was such a train wreck. I mean, me on the morning show, I was sort of detached from what was going on during the day because we were out. Right. I mean, you know, by, we were six to nine and by 10 o'clock we could barely talk. So, you, you, you know, we're just exhausted, but like- you know, initially it was pretty exciting. It was incredibly exciting. I mean, and, and I mean, I remember in some time in the fall. You did the funniest thing that fucking night that oh, with was, the laryngitis. That was the funniest thing you ever did to me. 
It was like it was the big what was it the launch party? Yeah. And you basically, you know, they were introducing each of the shows, and we all got to say something. And you get up there, and you got your bow tie. And it was a there was like a packed house, and they got a lot of press. I mean, Al was one of the biggest political voices on the left out there. He and Michael Moore at that time. Sure. And And you got up there. What would what did you say though? You get up there. They introduced you. I just said like. I'm very excited to do this. I'm sure my voice will be fine by tomorrow. <laughs> but it was something about like we're gonna show we're we're gonna show them the liberals have a voice. Yeah, something like that. It's funny, man. But it, yeah, it was very exciting. And and the the I remember being in a hotel out here when uh, Trio when when Pilot Season launched. Mm-hmm. And they had like a press event, and there were big like you know pictures of the show, and they were running it on the hotel right. table. Oh yeah. And I remember being up in the uh, hotel room, and it was very exciting to you know to have a show that you you know you've written, you've directed, and acted in be mm-hmm. on TV. It was a small outlet, mm-hmm. but it was very exciting for me. And then, Atrios, this blog, Escaton, this guy Duncan Black, yeah, yeah, yeah. Since, I remember that guy. And I had read him so much. Yeah. He mentioned me in a post. Yeah. And it was like, oh my god, this is like. Like I'm watching my show on TV right. and looking at my computer. I think I have a computer, like a picture I took of my computer. Right. And and I was just like, this is it. I've this is the pinnacle for me. Hey, trios. I wonder if I can keep this balancing act. And the answer was no. Yeah. No, it all fell apart. But, but but like it seems to me that like you know we we just did an episode of my show and we had a good time and it was funny and it was like, really fun yeah it was fun and you know you have all this you got a head full of uh, ideas about you know how to shoot things and do things how much of your you know lack of engagement in it recently in earnest is just sort of a fear a fear of like you know like. I mean, do you really not have time? I mean, or do do you really just sort of don't feel like you can I, express yourself in that way or it's not necessary? There's something more urgent? It's what? hard. It's really hard to go from something that is so literal, that is so literal and so, you know, the idea, like, I'm like when... I, I know. I, I mean, like, there's something right. very immediate it's, about it. And you but, but, it's, but but to, make, to have your brain go in those two different directions, like, on one hand, like... You know, we were talking about the the King v. Burwell SCOTUS case, which right. is not amusing to anybody, right? right. And but I want to know, like specifically, like I, I I need to know, like how how are the subsidies paid? When the IRS calculates it, how are they paid? What percentage is it? You know, what point do you get it? What are the implications? You know, how many people are going to be disenfranchised and not going to be able to buy insurance? And if they do, how is that going to create like a death spiral with the insurance industry because you 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 have a risk pool that's going to change and all this stuff? And then to sort of like, okay, I'm done with that. Now I'm going to write a story about like what happens if these two guys get up to crazy hijinks. It's not like I have a problem with that. It's just like my mind... You know, when you're a comedian, it's like you need to immerse yourself in it. And when you're doing like a like a show or whatever, you're creating like a whole new set of physics yeah. that are that exist only in that world. Right. And not in this other world. And they have to they have to be logical within the physics of that universe you I get created. It. Yeah, yeah. And, and to cross those two universes it's exhausting. just it's it's hard and you know, I got a two year old. 
Right. But do you like, look, I'm not here to talk you out of the, you know, fighting the good fight if, because I'm a coward. If this is an <laughs> offer know. to do a, a regular, uh, regular part, part uh, you're we can in? talk. We can negotiate. <laughs> no, but like, do you like the frustration of of the message falling on deaf ears, the, the sort of like lack of, of any really cohesive left in this country and the lack of that dialogue? I mean, not only are you hammering up against, you know, your own frustration and 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 taking it upon yourself and and maybe not making the kind of uh, livelihood you want but you know the 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 frustration of of the the dialogue not being there in this country has got to like just make it even worse yes is it worth it the only thing that um mitigates that level of frustration is that uh you know that like we're not getting anywhere the left has sort of fallen apart in many respects the only thing that mitigates it is that I feel like we're all fucked because of climate change anyways. <laughs> so, That's so, a, you don't believe in God, but you believe that. Uh, I and mean, that, that there's a faith in that. I mean, (laughs) no, that's, I mean, that is frustrating. It's very hard. Like, you know, and, and, and to a certain extent, it takes a certain amount of rationalization. Right. You know, before it was like, when you're on like a big platform, you can say like, I can, we can actually move the dial. Like, you know, at one point we shut down the, the phone banks at the New York Times in Washington mm-hmm. because, you know, I was pissed about something and you can mobilize people. Right. What I do now is like I have a, a different part in the cog, uh, you right. know, in the machine. And it's like the audience I talk to are, you know. The, the, some of them like run important organizations right. and, 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 and some work on, on other shows, you know, like, I mean, you know, a lot of the daily show people I know yeah. listen to the show. Cause I get a call occasionally like, right. Hey, this thing you were talking on about today, do you want to, you know? And I'm like, what, what? Right. I'm explaining something to somebody who's going to write it for, you know, the daily show and it's going to get, or give an idea as to like, you know, what they should focus on right. or something. Then I'm doing something. Yeah. You're, uh, you're part of the, the conversation and you're making yeah. you have influence well i thought the thing we did the break room thing despite the fact that i was uh you know kind of in bad shape we did a lot of funny shit on there that was pretty important like we did I, great shit and if you had listened to me we, it would have been very successful yeah we i mean that that's probably another you story so? for another time oh definitely like, i mean well, i was saying listen to you what well i was what? saying that we should have made an uh, uh, uh we should have tried to do a successful internet show rather than 300 pilots for a tv show that was never going to happen that was my argument at the time. We don't uh, have to get into how you were you right. would refuse to listen. I don't know if I refused. I just oh said, my god, you refused. All right, are we good? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. Did you feel it? Did you feel the love intention that Sam Cedar and I are known for? We're going to do things together again. I feel it. I don't know, maybe not. I don't, we'll see. Go to WTFPod.com. Check the new tour dates at WTFPod.com slash calendar. Um, you know, I've added dates in Minneapolis, Chicago, Portland, uh, New York area, uh, Cleveland. Go, WTFPod.com slash calendar. Do whatever you got to do on that site. Thank you for, for listening. And I mean that. I do. You changed my life. It's like you, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night, and, yeah. and although it's it's like one of the scariest things ever, yeah, to wake up in the middle of the night and see two little white kids standing at the edge of your bed. It's some creepy shit. <laughs> it's just creepy. <laughs> it's creepy. Because there's but, a moment where yes, you're like, what, what, what the hell? Yeah. 
What are these crazy little white kids what doing did, at the foot of my bed? Yeah, what did I do? Yeah, okay. right, right. What kind of horror movie is this? What is this? <laughs> and then you go like, oh, they're mine. Oh, they're mine. <laughs> oh, shit. They're my kids. Mark and Bert are in this big fight scene out at the pool. And yeah. He says, you don't look good. You've been up for two days. You've been doing blow everything else. He says, I haven't been up for two days. And Bert said, nevertheless... You look. You don't look good, and I'm not going to shoot you this way. And so every time Bert would say, "Nevertheless," I kept noticing this something happened over Ricky's face. I said, "What's going on?" And he said, "I can't. I'm almost going to laugh. I, I, I'm, whole, I'm suppressing laughter when he says, "Nevertheless," <laughs> and I said, "Why?" And he told me this great story of being at a football game where this. Um, woman is being introduced to sing the national anthem and her name is Helen uh, Helen Helen Forrest or whatever yeah. it is and uh, they said now to sing the national anthem Helen Forrest and somebody in the stand screams Helen Forrest sucks cock yeah and the announcer says nevertheless <laughs> I went outside and I went into the the courtyard of Rockefeller Center and Whoops, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> okay. I called my parents and I said, I'm going to be on Saturday Night Live. And it was really exciting. Yeah. I never cry when I, I just, you know what? It is a beautiful story. And sometimes I forget that. <laughs> yeah, now I'm crying. Because it is like cool to achieve something that you've always wanted and to do it kind of on your terms. And yeah. To call my parents, like, they were just so stunned like we were all so stunned just I came from like this fucking haunted house with these two artists with the woods on fire <laughs> yeah. and just like had this one dream and went to college and didn't become an asshole and to just call them and make that phone call right honestly I, f I forget about that yeah I wrote a song with Mick Jagger there was a sketch for the song in uh -huh. it and I was helping him write lyrics yeah and uh, <laughs> it was just me and him sitting in his dressing room and he said uh, all right what rhymes with drink? And there was a long pause. And I said, Brink? And he went, Now! <laughs> and then there was another long pause. And I went, Sink? And he went, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Motherfucker, is this how you write songs? <laughs> Just, it was great. Hello? Hello? Mick? Hey, Mark. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? The last time I saw you live was in 1981 at Madison Square Garden. Whoa, that's a long time. You must come more than once every 30 years. I, I know, Mick. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. Well, you know, uh, Keith, I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. This, uh, this conversation might have changed my life. <laughs> Not again, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Boomer lives!